I, I really think Europe has an opportunity to be a leader in AI right now. I love the fact that a lot of it's happening in the open source world. We are in a typical cycle with any new technology. This reminds me a lot of like the 90s with the dot-com boom. I think the Netscape moment was the chat GPT moment in this case, where the inflation of expectations and hype around the potential of the technology ran way, way far ahead of the ability for the technology to scale or to be able to deliver on the promises. This market has never been a great time to be an entrepreneur. But on the other hand, AI doesn't provide you a distribution advantage as a startup. So the real calculus is whether or not your startup can acquire customers faster than the incumbent can add AI to their product. Welcome to The Craft. I'm Patrick Herman, investor at Picos Capital, and I'm very excited to have uh, one of the most influential tech leaders out of Europe joining as my guest on today's uh, third episode of my podcast, The Craft, where I talk with uh, the pioneers of the coding frontier. He surely doesn't need an introduction, but let me intro him in any case briefly to you guys. Uh, Sean Moulinet is the current CTO of Algolia, which is not only one of Europe's most exciting tech rocket ships, uh, recently valued at over 2 billion US dollars, but more importantly, the world's if I'm uh, correct here, uh, second largest search destination behind uh, mighty Google. To put this in numbers, it's one out of six global internet users who interact with the Algolia tech platform every single month. And before steering Algolia, Sean built and scaled successful software engineering organizations for tech giants such as Stripe, Zalando, and Google. And from what I've heard, is already a third time founder and entrepreneur himself plus a scout at Sequoia Capital, who is obviously always on the hunt for the next generation of early stage technology um, founders. With Christmas being around the corner and the you know, year coming to an end, couldn't think about a better person to, to wrap it up and also to wrap up the craft here for this year, diving into the evolution of search uh, and what might've been uh, you know, one of the most turbulent years of AI in history and reflect on some parts here. So Sean, it's my true pleasure having you here at The Craft. Been looking forward to the session for a while. And I would say, let's go. Pleasure having you here. Welcome to The Craft. Whereabouts in the world do I reach you? Yeah, well, thank you so much for the very kind and generous introduction. Um, <laughs> I'm joining you from uh, Dublin today, uh, where I'm based in Ireland. Um, and yeah, excited to get started. Perfect. How, maybe before we jump into the content directly, I mean, it's the year end, right? Christmas around the corner, everyone wrapping up the year, probably you guys at Algolia as well. Uh, and it's always a good time to ref reflect, right? Before diving into that, what's the thing you're looking forward to most in the holiday season? Yeah, I think like everyone, uh, I'm looking forward to having a little break uh, after a really, really big year for um, a lot of engineers, um, particularly who are in the e-commerce space. You know, Black Friday is a huge event um, and Cyber Week. And, uh, you know, the team and I this year managed to scale up our systems to like 100,000 queries per second, uh, deliver wow. five nines availability. And it's a real big team effort. And so it's always a good kind of like end of year celebration. Black Friday is one of those events where uh, the production engineering and DevOps teams really become superstars. And so uh, coming off the back of that, I'm just looking forward to getting a break, spending time with the family. I think clearing your head for a couple of weeks at the end of the year, giving you some space to reflect and think about things you want to do differently next year. Right. And then next year, from what it feels and sounds like uh, today, 
will be a turbulent one as well, right? I think, uh, especially on the AI hype train, we're not at the end. I think there's much more coming up. Um, maybe let's start with a short view back into the past, right? Uh, leading technology um, at Algolia, one of the biggest search companies, as mentioned in the introduction. How did search change throughout the last, you know, 10 years? Uh, because it's so important. It's so uh, everywhere in all digital experiences. Uh, how did it change in a sense of did the user behavior change? Did the te technology behind it change uh, dramatically? Would love to get some perspectives on that as a start. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when you think about search, I mean, search has been very similar for the last 20, 30 years you know, from the very first search engines in the 90s. In essence, what search has always been is about matching words. You know, you type in your query right. into Google. Uh, it has billions of documents. It's figure out what words are in all those documents. And then it tries to figure out which documents contain the most words that match your query. And, you know, search has really not progressed a huge amount since then. You think a lot of the experiences, particularly like Algolia is a search infrastructure that sits behind the scenes um, from about 20,000 different applications um, all, over the all over the world. So um, when you think about your experience um, on sites that aren't Google, um, the search box is still very much behaving like it did back in the late 90s. You know, you go to an e-commerce store, you type in a query, and, you know, people's behavior, they know that this is just matching words, which is why we kind of like type out two or three keywords we don't really use human language. We know there's a computer behind the scenes. So we try to like change our language so that we can speak the computer's language when we search. And this is still the experience, you know, in 2023 and most of the uh, websites that we visit. But what happened a year ago um, with ChatGPT and, you know, the, the transformers, the LLM um, ar architecture has been around, you know, since what, 2017, 2018, when Google published the first paper. But I think what really happened with GPT three, three and a half about a year ago is that these models got to a size where the quality of the output and the ability to understand human language and respond in human language, it crossed a, a, a threshold of quality where people suddenly understood, wow, this technology can actually uh, deliver a human conversation and human-like responses. So even though like GPT-2 was interesting and it was good, the quality level was not at that bar that it recaptured really human imagination. So I think that's what happened a year ago is, you know, ChatGPT really demonstrated that these LLMs are now in a position to create real value. And when you think about search, I mean, search is a natural language problem. Like people want to be able to express themselves uh, in language what they're looking for and then be able to find out of like the hundreds of thousands and millions of different things that could satisfy that query, what is the most relevant item? And so uh, these new language models are really transforming the way that we think about search. Because for the first time, instead of just matching words, we can actually understand the concepts and the nuances that people are looking for. And they can express themselves in a richer way. And we can then actually match things inside the index, whether it's an e-commerce store or whether it's a news site or something like this. Even if the keywords don't match, we can still understand the concepts that people are looking for using these LLMs. So the search space definitely in the last year has overgone a, a very radical transformation. And we're all trying to get LLMs as an integral part of the search path. And one of the things we have noticed is that the, um, for example, a basic statistic, like the number of keywords people are using when they're searching has gone up dramatically in the last year. Um, even in the first six months after ChatGPT launched, 
we saw almost a doubling in the number of keywords on a lot of the, the sites that we power. So people's expectations have also changed. Instead of like having to figure out how do I talk to the computer and keywords, they're like, you know what, I'm just going to actually talk normally and try to see uh, what the results come back. So a big jump in expectations from customers. Right. And I, I mean, it relates also to, to uh, two dimensions, right? On the one hand, you can also search across different modalities and you can also use different modalities down the line to search, right? You can use the voice, you can use the natural language text and so on. And the other piece is obviously if you, uh, if you think long term, the experience could also change, right? You are powering 20,000 uh, website, as you pointed out, right? And uh, do you think not only search will change, but also the entire way people interact with e-commerce websites, you know, how they do their deliveries, how they do their grocery shoppings and everything. Do you think that will also change? And to what extent do you guys as, you know, the infrastructure and uh, the batteries powering search also want to capture this at Algolia? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that some of the modalities about how people you know, interact with databases and information retrieval is going to change. So at the moment, there's just like a box and you type in some keywords and, you know, the database runs and they return your results. You might have to go and filter and scroll through pages and stuff. But it's still, you know, um, I describe some of these experiences being like a warehouse with a website put on top of it. You know, the customer still has to trawl through. And in essence, you know, they're, they're like creating SQL queries with their keywords and their filters and things. But it's still pretty overwhelming, right? The number of results that come back and trying to understand what's relevant. So one of the areas that we're really trying to work on at the moment is this idea of conversational commerce, where when you come to a website, um, instead of just tapping in keywords, to try to find things, um, you're able to actually have a conversation with someone who acts more like a, an assistant. I always love the experience of walking into a store, right? Uh, and this is why I think high, high street retail still works for many niches. You know, if you want to go into a sports store, I often go in and I just want to ask someone for help, right? Because they're experts on all the products that are on the shelves and they understand, you know, like running shoes or they understand different types of tennis rackets and you can have a conversation with them. And most importantly, they can teach you. And um, I think this is going to be far more common when people experience kind of search on the internet. So imagine, you know, a sports store online having a chat bot that you're able to have a conversation with um, and really be able to dive into the details, compare products, get advice and get that kind of expert domain knowledge. You know, it's a bit like the, the genius in the Apple store, right? We're going to have a genius on the website that's going to be able to help you uh, work through your buying decisions. And one of the things that we see is, is that, um, you know, customers end up buying a lot more on sites where they have the confidence and that kind of assistant is there to help give you confidence in the products that are on the site or right for you. And I mean, the point is it always has been there, right? Like those chatbots have been existing for, for years and ages, but now you have the technology advancement to really be creative and really be, you know, uh, guiding the user, as you pointed out on those websites, maybe on that part, because um, you also lose to some extent as the technology organization who's powering a Zalando, for instance, you lose certain information about the user, right? Because they kind of like give the input, right? The prompt uh, to the models who are working in the background. Um, and there are questions always around observability and kind of control of those models, which boils down to also what kind of models are you using? Are you using the open source ones? Are you using closed uh, source providers? And we've been seeing now with the launch of uh, Gemini from, from Google DeepMind, 
but also the Mistrial guys right now in France on the open source side, there are two kind of like camps in the market, right? And both of them are raising to win the, the model performance war in a sense. How do you view that race and what, what do you also hear from your customers, right? So kind of like the e-commerce sites and so on. Uh, what's important for them and what are they using at the moment, I guess? Yeah, and I mean, firstly, I think one of the most exciting things about this kind of technology revolution has been that it has been all API driven, right? So right. all of these models are available to any developer right now to be able to build applications on top of. So there's been a real democratization of access to these extremely powerful models. Whereas before, um, these models may have existed, but they have been trapped inside of products like, you know, Google will have had a lot of these language models but they would only be applied to the products that Google offer. Um, but now they're available to everyone, right? And anyone can build on top of them and anyone can build apps and enhance their products. So firstly, I think it's a great thing. There's so many opportunities for developers right now to access this hugely powerful AI that has been really only the largest companies have been able to, to de develop on in the past. So this is great. I think the question becomes a little bit like, um, what is the use case you're trying to solve? And for many people, just building on top of an API um, is absolutely you know, uh, perfect for solving their use cases. They can get up and running fast. They've got a usage-based model and they can swap in different models for different um, purposes. So I think these kind of like closed source models with an API access uh, is, gonna, is gonna work for a lot of use cases. But then you think, you know, there are a ton of use cases where latency is extremely important. Uh, we're being able to fine tune and customize models is important. We're cost. I mean, we're still in this kind of like prototype proof of concept phase and people aren't really caring a lot about cost, but cost is a huge issue right now to be able to provide these at scale. And, you know, we're starting at Algolia to roll out these LLMs at scale. And, you know, we know that every hundred milliseconds on a search affects the conversion rate. What, what kind of models are, are you guys using at Algolia? Um, so we're using open source LLMs. We vectorize all of the products and records in the index, yes. and then we vectorize the query. And then we have a highly optimized version of vector search that can operate at a very high speed. We do compression of vectors. Um, so we're using the first half of the LLM. So the way in which we um, kind of encode into vectors. Um, and then for these like conversational experiences, we use the uh, generative part of the LLM as well. But We're having to put LLMs into production in an environment where speed is really, really important. Um, yeah. As we know, you know, a little bit of latency on a search request changes the, the customer outcomes. Um, and we're also having to do it in an environment where cost really matters because we're actually starting to scale, right? We're not just in the proof of concept stage anymore. And so I do think that a lot of the open source models that are going to provide folks like us that have very, very mission critical applications um, an advantage to be able to scale these up with cost and speed. I mean, in, in the end, it becomes an integral part of your tech stack, right? And what we've seen in the last couple of years that everyone optimizes the spend on compute, the spend on, you know, observability and so on. And obviously like LLM, as you pointed out, it's still early days, but cost is essential, right? If you also think that this will completely revolutionize how tech stacks are being built, or it is a completely separate tech stack, I think it could be uh, become super interesting for the open source piece. What do you see as like disadvantages on the open source side? Do you think it needs to have a certain sophistication of engineering organizations to integrate them and work with them in a sense? 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things on open source is um, there's probably um, less of a layer around um, kind of safety and quality built on top of them. They're a little bit more like, you know, here it is, you use it for your use case and, um, you know, you can fine tune on top of these. But I think, you know, a lot of the packaged API uh, LLMs are going to come with a whole bunch of features on top of them um, that are going to, you know, um, probably limit some of the hallucinations, make sure that you have like safety, brand safety, limiting topics, um, things like this. So there'll be a lot of, um, you know, human feedback, real-time learning layers on top of the um, packaged ones that probably just won't exist on the open source ones as much. So um, I think from that perspective, um, if you are just trying to get up and running and build a production system where cost and latency, these things aren't an issue, you're probably going to want some of those features on the API-driven services. Right, right. And the, like, if you look a little like down the line, I don't know, three, five years, do you see a world where you have the two of them existing alongside each other, the closed source models and the open source model because of the different use cases? Or do you see a certain pattern emerging um, going forward? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that both will exist. And the question becomes, I think, where the economics of each of these ends up. I think, you know, OpenAI and a lot of these um, existing packaged APIs, they're very expensive today. And just like, you know, using some of the cloud services on Amazon, you kind of have the choice of whether you use one of these, like, you know, more feature-rich managed services, but they're quite expensive to scale up, or whether you go with some of the more raw underlying APIs and compute and you run things yourself. And so I think there's always going to be a variety of needs inside of um, the tech industry for people to get like more bare metal or happy to pay a little bit more for having a much more kind of like beautifully managed service where you're able to just like scale up and down on a usage basis. At Algolia, is there a thriving open source community also within the tech organization and within the engineering organization? And how do you maintain that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're really a developer platform. Um, you can think of us like we're Stripe for search. Um, yep. And so having a really rich set of um, developer tools, whether it's APIs or SDKs or front-end uh, libraries, data connectors, all of these things are super important for developers to be able to move fast and get products built quickly. So we actually have like a, a really big kind of open source community around Algolia that have built all sorts of data connectors um, and integrations uh, with all sorts of open source products and content management systems. Stack Overflow is a huge source of support for us. We have open source UX components and libraries that are constantly being improved, even by like some of our competitors use them and improve them. So I think, you know, um, we feel like open source is really, really powerful when it comes to um, like integrating and using from a developer experience. But then, you know, we're very much about optimizing a closed source solution to get highest performance for the core search engine. So, you know, we've um, for years had the debate internally about to open source or not to open source. And we've always felt that by keeping our core engine closed source, we could move much faster and really ensure that we have the highest performance. And I mean, what we or what I've been seeing is that also within Europe, you do have a very strong open source community, right? Um, where, you know, some of the biggest maintainers and key contributors uh, are all based out of Europe. How do you see like within the open source AI space, uh, kind of the war between, you know, US and kind of like the European landscape? Um, I mean, we, Mistral has been all, all around the news uh, in the last week. Um, could that be a, finally a part where Europe steps up and, you know, uh, also brings 
lots of value in the open source community here finally to the market in Europe. Yeah, and I, I'm like, I'm so excited to see so much of this foundational technology being built in Europe. It's, it's amazing to see this next uh, generation of entrepreneurs emerge uh, in the talent. You know, I've always said that Europe has, you know, equal talent to the US. It's just the opportunity in the ecosystem to be entrepreneurial and to develop big companies here. And I think one of the advantages is, you know, Europe doesn't have, you know, large dominant tech companies here. And so I think that's part of the reason why, you know, uh, maybe some of this open source community has come together in Europe. Whereas in the US, um, I think a lot of the talent has been um, sucked into the big tech companies and there's less uh, just kind of talent out there in terms of trying to build open source type of projects. So I, I really think Europe has an opportunity to be a leader in AI right now. Um, I love the fact that a lot of it's happening in the open source world. And, um, you know, one thing to think about, though, is, is that, you know, these models are extraordinarily expensive to train and they're only getting larger and the expense to train larger and larger models is going to get bigger and bigger. And so while these companies have these open source products, they still have to create a sustainable business model around them uh, in order to attract the capital and to continue to invest and compete, um, you know, on uh, on investment. And so, you know, although that seems very, you know, kind of uh, beneficial open sourcing and giving it away for free, you know, Mistral and other companies are going to have to figure out a business model that's going to make them billions of dollars of revenue or else they're not going to be able to make the type of capital investments to stay at the cutting edge. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a super relevant point, right? We've been seeing this also that some early stage partners for founders building open source models themselves on the foundational layer that they already provide kind of like the compute and kind of compute clusters even, right? Because if you're a first time founder and you want to spin up and build your own foundational layer models, you definitely need some, some uh, capital injection in the very beginning. Super relevant for, for those guys also to thrive here in Europe. Maybe like switching gears a little bit, like on the enterprise AI side. Um, I mean, you at Algolia, you power some of the biggest enterprise e-com companies out there, right? And we touched upon this slightly in the very beginning that this year was more a year of piloting experimentation with large language models, tr trying out a little bit. What do you see for 24? And how do you actually either if, as a founder of an LLM company, right, as a CTO in an enterprise or as a normal developer in an enterprise, how do you get those models to one production, but also ultimately uh, generate value for your customers, right? How do you achieve that and how do you get, get over the line, I guess? Yeah. Well, this is the exciting part of computer science. So I feel like we've, we've been in the demonstration phase for a while now. And thanks to the you know kind benefactors of large tech companies and venture capitalists, we haven't really had to worry too much so far in this first phase about you know how to commercialize LLMs into real products, how to pay for them, how to make them fast and scalable. And you know we're definitely I feel like um, already on the front line of hitting these pain points. So you know uh, we've known that vector search and LLMs in search were performed well in a type of scientific environment where you're able to run it on small data sets. But what we've spent the last couple of years doing is trying to break through the, you know, kind of the trifecta of, you know, quality, cost, speed, scale, you know, these, you can kind of choose one or two. And at the moment people are like seeing, Hey, this, the results are incredible quality, but it's at the expense of either cost or speed. 
And so I think this is really where the next year or two is going to lead us to, which is um, it may look great in a prototype, a demo, a proof of concept, but suddenly you start rolling it out and, you know, you need to be doing, you know, a thousand of these every second. Customers are getting bored waiting for a response after three, four seconds, or you start to realize that you can't charge your customers an extra, you know, 50, 100% for the added cost that the LMs are going to create. And so this is like the hard thing about practical computer science is taking a breakthrough technology and figuring out how to productionize it and scale it and commercialize it. And uh, I think this is really going to be the theme for the next year or two as folks really try to you know, scale up and create value out of products. And I mean, on, on that one, you do have two groups in the market, right? The one group kind of justifies that it's not at large scale adoption because it The data is just not there. It's a data problem. And you also need the data at large scale for all the edge cases in the world. And the other group rather argues in a similar camp to you, right? Who says it's a platform problem, productionizing problem. Uh, how do you see the data problem? Do you see that that one is already solved for most of the customers of Igolia or also for you guys at Igolia as well? Yeah, I mean, with a lot of these applications, you also have to apply either human in the loop or some, types of, some type of real-time learning human feedback. So the models out of the box, typically, um, you know, as you said, the edge cases, it may work 90% of the time, but the 10% of the time you have to add an extra layer of training. And that training generally has to happen from humans. Humans are the ones that are able to judge the quality correctly of a response. Um, it's very difficult to do this algorithmically. And so, you know, you, you do have to put investments in to have human reviews and human QA or humans in the loop. So I do actually think that um, the reason why we're seeing co-pilots as some of the first successful use cases is because there's a human in the loop always. These are assisting humans in doing their job. And those humans are providing real-time feedback that can be used to fine-tune the models. So it's okay if, you know, GitHub co-pilot is only right 90% of the time because there's a human there to make sure that the other 10% uh, it's corrected. So I do think co-pilots are probably going to be the first way in which we see this kind of technology scaled out and helping. And then hopefully you'll get to a point where you, it's the quality levels are, you know, two, three, four nines of accuracy, and you might start to remove the human from the loop. And I mean, also on that frontier on the kind of a like human feedback loop or AI feedback loop, you do have also new early stage startups emerging now who try to uh, provide this out of the box, right? Reinforcement learning with human feedback or AI feedback, maybe just uh, on the getting LLM into production and enterprise grade, like what, what would be learnings you, you would share with founders who are working at this intersection or operators at those enterprises to do this faster, right? To not do this end of 24, but rather in the, the first couple of months of 24. Um, Well, the first thing is, is um, I think that we are in a typical cycle with any new technology. This reminds me a lot of like the 90s with the dot-com boom, um, you know, after that Netscape moment. I think yeah. the Netscape moment was the chat GPT moment in this case, where, you know, the first six months to a year afterwards, the inflation of expectations and hype around the potential of the technology ran way, way far ahead of the ability for the technology to scale. Um, or to be able to deliver on the promises. And so we're in the stage where expectations <laughs> are extraordinarily high. <laughs> They're inflated. They continue to inflate. 
Um, but the reality on the ground is, is that these proof of concepts and prototypes, although compelling and exciting, still have a lot of work to do to get them to production grade and to get them to scale. And so, um, you know, one of my predictions is, is that very quickly as the difference between the expectations and the reality of how hard this is to productionize, we're going to enter that like trough of disillusionment on the hype cycle. And just like when um, the dot-com bubble popped, there were only 40 million people online at the height of the dot-com mania. And the real work and the real productionization of the internet and value accrued over the next five to 10 years, where the inflated expectations of the 90s actually met the reality of the internet. And so I actually think that, you know, AI is a five to 10 year technology. Similarly, it took another five or 10 years. Um, the Apple iPhone moment was the moment where the, the mobile revolution reached its kind of the start of the inflated expectations. Yeah. But again, it took five or 10 years and the reality was even better than what the expectations were. So we're in another cycle right now. We're at the, the I, I don't know if we're at the peak inflated expectations. I'm sure there's still more, more to run. But I, I firmly believe that the FOMO that people are getting right now, because of the speed at which the demonstrations and expectations are building, people shouldn't be so worried. We're going to have five to 10 years of productionizing and getting this stuff to work. But I think that the outcome of what's going to happen in the next five or 10 years will exceed even our expectations today. But wouldn't you agree that, you know, the base... Obviously, there is hype in the market, right? But the base in terms of the platforms which are out there, the amounts of engineers who are capable of working with those models is just 10 times higher versus, you know, in a dot-com bubble. And therefore, this, you know, it won't take so long to actually create value because you do have more people who already can work with it, right? You do have a tech stack, which is very profound. Um, and obviously, on the infra layer, It's already quite advanced because you do have large model providers. So it's rather in the middle layer and just, you know, giving developers the speed to productionize those, those platforms that it's faster to get it into the market because just the base is so much stronger today in terms of the people you have, in terms of the tool stack you have, and also the infrastructure, which is available that it won't take, you know, five to 10 years to create and uh, capture the value, but rather it's faster. It's two years. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's some truth to that. I think the fact that the technology has really been democratized through these APIs and these kind of like LLMs as a service that are being provided, it means we can get to the application building and value creation stage faster. So I do think there's some positives. You know, on the negatives, I mean, you know, there really aren't that many people that deeply understand LLMs and are able to customize LLMs. You know, there are folks that can use the OpenAI API. And there are folks who can actually, you know, customize, build, productionize, scale, and get these LLMs working in practice. And I still think that, that uh, everyone is learning right now. You know, I think a huge rush of talent into the market in the last year to 18 months. But in honesty, I think it's going to take, you know, again, several years for every engineer and all of the companies around the world that want to build AI into their products and scale it. Uh, to figure out how to fine tune it, how to get the quality working, and then how to scale up with speed and cost. So um, I'm optimistic, but you know, I also, um, you know, Bill Gates has this famous line: we we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10. And I think we're still overestimating just how fast we're going to go in the next year in terms of really productionizing these, where you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people are seeing this come 
create value in their everyday life. And I think, you know, we're going to find the next year, people are going to start to hit some of the practical applied computer science problems around quality and speed and scale and productionizing this. Also one, uh, as mentioned, Christmas kind of like year end reflection episode. Uh, if in your, your third time founder, also from what I've heard, uh, if you want to, you know, emerge on the fourth gig, so to speak, what kind of AI, AI company would you start? Would you start a the foundational layer, middle layer or application layer? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I think, first of all, uh, on the foundational layer perspective, we have a great amount of competition right now. And I think there are going to be a whole host of different LLM models that are going to be competing. I expect that a lot of the value won't accrue over the long term at the LLM layer. Similarly, how a lot of the value has not accrued at either the um, you know, hardware CPU or operating system layer in the past. Um, in the short term, I think there will be a lot of value accrued there. Um, but I think that the level of competition and having big companies like Google and Facebook, they will drive costs down considerably. And so I think it really is obviously the application layer. Um, and one of the hard things about um, this market, it's never been a greater time to be an entrepreneur. But on the other hand, AI doesn't provide you a distribution advantage as a startup. So the startups that existed during the dot-com boom and the mobile revolution, these they had distribution advantages. They could acquire customers and build out large audiences faster and quicker uh, than incumbents using this new technology. And so any company that's building a new product right now where their core differentiator is AI, they still have to go and acquire all of the same customers from their competitors, you know, legacy companies not using AI. And it's never been easier for a incumbent to add AI to their product. So the real calculus is whether or not your startup can acquire customers faster than the incumbent can add AI to their product. And so if you're in a fast moving, highly competitive industry, uh, a good example is someone like Intercom. Intercom have now got a great suite of AI products called Fin. And so, you know, any of those startups, they're like, I'm going to use AI in customer service. It's like, great. Now you have to build intercom and the AI and go and acquire their customers. And oh, six months in, they're already launching it. So um, you have to look at markets where the incumbents are unlikely to innovate over like a three to five year period and add AI or move fast enough. Then it gives you that window of time that you can go and actually try to build a, a sustainable business with a competitive differentiator. So um, it's tough. Um, I, I don't know what I would do from a startup today The, the problems and um, opportunities in AI search uh, certainly are enough to keep me excited and just really, really fortunate. Like, you know, in, when you're in te the technology industry, these are the moments that are just so exciting. You know, when new real quantum leaps in what's technically possible happen in a short period of time, um, this is what's exciting about being in technology. And so, you know, I'm just, um, I'm excited that I'm able to, you know, be building products on the front line using this technology and, and, and learning and being a part of that. Um, and I mean, like everyone is excited to see what's in stock for, for Algolia in the next year, right? I think we'll see lots of product uh, evolution and, and announcement. Maybe also looking at the time to, to close it out and, and give you the, the hopefully very well-deserved break in the holiday season. Uh, we'll close out uh, the craft always with the ritual, right? With the standard kind of what's craft in software engineering for you and what's the craft you're most proud of creating? Yeah, I love the term craft. Um, I do use this a lot at work as well. And, you know, I think uh, to build a software product, it takes so many different 
um, types of expertise, whether it's great visual designers or product managers or um, program managers, engineers, um, you name it, like lawyers, security experts, and every one of them has a craft. And it really is a craft because you have to learn it through experience. Although we love this you know, uh, idea of a genius appears and is born with all of these incredible abilities and skills, the reality is, is that you've got to learn your craft through experience. Um, and that experience typically involves failure, right? You've got to try things, fail, self-reflect, and learn. And so um, one of the things that I'm most proud of about is I spend a lot of time working with my managers and leaders to teach them the craft of leadership. And leadership is not something that is inherently kind of born inside someone. It has to be taught and coached and mentored. And I've been lucky enough to have great mentors uh, along the way that have taught me the craft and explained it to me and given me that feedback. And so um, I think it's, um, you know, I learn every day. I fail all the time. I'm still learning the craft. Um, but I really do think that it's, it's like a craft, figuring out how to manage a team and deliver a product. So yeah, that's, that's the craft that I'm most excited about. Super nice, uh, especially if you go after hard problems, uh, as you guys are doing at uh, Golia. Thanks so much, Sean. This was great. This was good fun. Uh, thanks for jumping on. Thanks for joining the, the craft uh, and uh, enjoy the holiday season, I guess. Well, thank you so much for having me on and I'm a big fan of the show. So keep making the craft. Will do. Thanks so much, Sean.